I invite you to open to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 19 to 24. Just a reminder that right after the service, those helping and serving in the Welcome Center, please join us at Lower Zwingli. I will not be greeting you at the door because I'll be at that meeting, but Upper Zwingli. I see, I got it right earlier. I was all proud of myself, and then I blew it. <laughs> Upper Zwingli uh, for our meeting. We'll be looking at verse 19 to 24. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I have said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Father, we ask now for wisdom, wisdom to... Uh, comprehend that which you are teaching us here in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I'd like to do something. I'm going to go through the definition found in the American Heritage Dictionary for a word that I looked up there. And here's the five uh, different definitions. Uh, Slow to learn or understand. That's the first definition. Second is tending to make poor decisions or careless mistakes. Third, marked by a lack of intelligence or care, foolish or careless. The fourth definition is dazed, stunned, or stupefied. And the fifth is pointless and worthless. And I don't call it out, but what is the word? Well, the word is stupid. It's not a nice word. <laughs> Uh, it wasn't allowed to be used in my house without a little bit of reprimanding. Uh, but in light of the definitions that we find there in the dictionary, we can see that it's a word that unfortunately describes many people. Politicians come to mind. Uh, atheists, Scripture says, uh, come to mind. But so do pastors, and so do everyday Christians. Often, to put it harshly, we all act stupidly. That is, we act foolishly, we act thoughtlessly, we naively and unwisely. And to combat this tendency within us to do this, to act stupidly, Solomon is going to help us by showing our need for godly wisdom. Now, let's Recall what's going on in the book so far. Solomon has spent a lot of his time here trying to find out the meaning of existence, and he's been trying to do it apart from God. If there is no God, is there meaning to existence under the sun, as he said? One writer said that philosophically, Solomon has dabbled in many different philosophies, existentialism, is one man is a self-determining agent responsible for the authenticity of his or her own choices and he so he's dabbled in existentialism pessimism that the existing world is the worst of all possible worlds and that all things naturally tend to evil 
Hedonism, that one we identified with, uh, we spent time there, belief that pleasure and happiness is the highest good, where most of our people in society live today. Nihilism, life is without any objective meaning. Life has no purpose or no intrinsic value. Nothing actually matters. And he also looked at atheism or agnosticism, that there is no God or that there may be a God, but he, we can't know him, and so it doesn't really matter. It doesn't make much of a difference if he's there. And in light of these different philosophies that he's explored, he's pursued all these different worldviews, he came to the conclusion that in light of that, life is utterly futile. It's filled with boredom. It's saturated with sorrow, it's grievous, it's, it's frustrating, it's uncertain, it's without purpose, it's incurable, it's unjust, it's without hope. It's really on the level of animal existence. And after he's dabbled in all those philosophies, after he's searched them all to try to find meaning, he comes to the conclusion, you remember, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. However, Solomon doesn't give up. He tried to combat this futility of life. He wanted to find purpose in life, and he tried. He tried human wisdom, and he tried pleasure. He tried alcohol. He, he, he tried personal indulgence. He, he tried these massive building projects, and, and he made these beautiful gardens and parks. Uh, but none of these things got him any further along. And so what he did in chapter 5 is turn his sights away from life under the sun, and, and he turned his sights toward God finally, and that's when he found the answer. You remember, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil of which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. Chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. In the midst of all that, he found no answers, and he turns to God. You've heard the name repeated. Joy in the midst of trials is, is found in God and with God. Joy in the midst of vanity is found with God. It's, it, it's knowing God, an experiential knowledge of God, being in relationship with God, acknowledging God. It's recognizing that the sovereign Lord of the universe ordains everything that comes to pass, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so life apart from God is pointless. It's futile. It is stupid. But the, uh, the, the wise person fears the Lord. And they are wise because of it. They find meaning and purpose and gladness of heart in their life because they fear God. And so what we need is wisdom. We need wisdom to understand this importance. We need godly wisdom. And that brings us to our text this morning. Now, the first thing Solomon tells us about wisdom is that it will make us strong. Look at verse 19. 
Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. And you've heard the saying, right? Strength in numbers. In fact, Solomon has pointed that out. Two are better than one. And, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. There's strength in numbers. There's strength in relationship. Well, the analogy in verse 19 does this. It, it presents a city council, and they're ten strong. Ten men who are ruling the city, and yet one wise person is stronger than them. And so in this case, everything's turned on its head. One is greater than ten. One wise person is greater than ten fools. One writer said, a God-directed wise person may make better decisions about right and wrong than the consensus of a whole flock of pragmatic politicians who do not fear God. See, a, a wise person with godly wisdom fears God and, and therefore fears no one else. Psalm 112 states, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, verse 1. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord, verse 6. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid, verse 8. The fear of the Lord casts out all other fear. And so, you remember Jesus, he commands us, fear not them, those who can kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Who can kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I tell you, fear him. That's Matthew 10. If you are wise, you will fear God, and if you fear God, you will fear nothing else. That is what we're learning if you're walking with the Lord, if you're walking in wisdom, you will have what it takes to adequately face the trials of life. That's what he's telling us. That's Solomon's point. Wisdom gives us power to overcome adversity. Think about it. Wisdom gov governs our thoughts, right? So the wise person knows how to think about things in, in a God-centered way. Wisdom governs our will, so the wise person knows what choices to make in life. It governs our speech, so the wise person knows what to say and also what not to say. And it governs our actions, wisdom does, so the wise person knows what to do in any and every situation that they face in this world. And we're going to face many challenges in this life. Uh, but we can have wisdom to help us govern them, govern them all. And so in the remaining verses, what Solomon lists for us is some of the challenges in life that we must face and overcome. What he's doing is basically saying here, this is why you're going to need this godly wisdom. First, we, we need wisdom because we're sinners. Look at verse 20. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. No human since the fall is sinless. We're all guilty of both sins of omission and sins of commission. We don't do what we should, and then we end up doing things we shouldn't be doing in the first place. We sin. Now, I'm going to spend more time in this next week when we deal with it in verses 25 to 29. For now, it's simple enough to say we are unrighteous. We're all weak sinners in need of the strength we gain from godly wisdom. 
See, Solomon tells us if we walk in the fear of God and allow, and allow ourselves to follow his wisdom, we'll, we'll be able to detect and, and defeat the wicked one when he comes to tempt us with this sin. It, it guides our daily walk, this godly wisdom. It, it doesn't just simply... You know, I think when we think of wisdom, we think of people who can answer philosophical questions. They have a lot of knowledge. Nothing wrong with that. It's not just that, though. See, godly wisdom, much like God's grace, teaches us what? To renounce ungodliness and and to renounce unworldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, the Scripture teaches See, wisdom then directs our path so we ha- say no to sin and, and, and then say yes to righteousness. Now, these words imply something important when it comes to living wisely. It's not just that you are a sinner. You are. That's true enough. But that everyone you come in contact with as a sinner. This is why one of my premarital counseling lessons includes the importance of confession in a marriage. Why? Because it's two sinners coming together in one of the most intimate situations. Things are about to get mixy. And so there, there's not a righteous man who walks the face of this earth, Solomon said. We're all sinners. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And when you bring two selfish sinners together, there's bound to be conflict. And, and so this brings us to the second reason why we need wisdom, to help us deal with the sin in others. And, and, and here, in particular, he has two sins in mind, the sin of gossip, or I guess one sin, or the sin of slander. Look at verse 21 and 22. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Yeah, the image here is kind of like somebody who snoops. Right, They're outside the door, and they have their ear to the door, and they're trying to hear what other people are saying about them. And Solomon is saying the wise person pays no attention to sinful gossip of another sinner because there are more important matters to give your attention to than that. Charles Spurgeon used to tell his students uh, that the minister ought to have one blind eye and one deaf ear. He said you can't stop people's tongues. And therefore, the best thing to do is stop your own ears and never mind what is spoken. There is a world of idle chit-chat abroad, he said, and he who takes note of it will have enough to do. His point is that you need to have thick skin or you'll succumb to gossip. And what happens is it consumes you. That's That's what Solomon's getting at. Why even bother snooping? Why do you want to hear what others are saying about you behind closed doors? You know, it's not even worth knowing. In fact, the best thing to do, Solomon says, is remember the outcome of your own gossip. You've slandered people before. He's saying you've done it. You've talked to your friends. Maybe you're just venting, but but you've done it. Where did it get you? And so Solomon says, learn from your own slander. Learn from hurtful things you've said to others. What did it accomplish? Like I said, you got the vent. That, that, that's usually it. But how much did it achieve? Not much. And, and so what good will it do to hear someone else slandering you or saying things about you behind your back? And see, what happens here, what Solomon's getting is that wisdom helps us to navigate these orders. 
He mentions the sin of gossip to show that wisdom is what? It's kind of discerning. And discernment is another term. It's discriminating. It is able to look out and hear things and select what is helpful and then do away with or trash in advance what would have had harmful effects. Wisdom does not eavesdrop. It does not listen to in the wrong places. Wisdom does not slander anyone, but is peaceable, gentle, showing all humility toward men. Now, in his uh, commentary on this, Dr. Riken gives an illustration. And he gives the illustration from the Chronicles of Narnia. If you're familiar with it, he says that there's a lesson here that Lucy learned. The lesson that Solomon teaches, Lucy learned that lesson when she looked inside the magician's book. This is from the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And she was leafing through the book. She came across this magical incantation. And she saw the spell that would enable her to hear what her friends were saying about her. And so her curiosity got the best of her. Now, Lucy cast the spell, and soon she could overhear her friends. One of the friends said, she's not a bad little girl in her own way. And the other said, at least, uh, at least one of her friends said, well, I'm getting pretty tired of her, was their mindset. And so she heard that. And it would have been wiser, much wiser. The book shows that out, and Solomon surely declares it, for Lucy to leave well enough alone rather than to ruin a reasonably good relationship. And so the lesson for us is simple. The same thing will happen to us if we insist on knowing what people are saying about us behind our back. We need to know what to hear and what to ignore, especially when it comes to criticism. It's not wrong uh, to hear criticism and learn from it, but wisdom helps us to not be overly concerned with other people's opinions are of us. Just remember this. He's saying, look, Remember how easy you exaggerate when you criticize others? I know that they're prone to do the same. And so we are all sinners. We all fail to meet God's standard of perfect speech. Just look at the book of James. The tongue is like fire. And so we should be slow to judge other people, he's saying, for not living up to that standard since we can't either. Now, before moving on, let me just add one more lesson here. It comes from somebody I've mentioned before, Jonathan Edwards, first president of, of Princeton, the great revivalist, preacher, pastor. When he was all of 19 years old, I can't even admit publicly what I was doing when I was 19, but when he was 19 years old, he penned 70 resolutions as guidelines for how to live his life. This is what his 31st resolution was. Resolved never to say anything all against anybody, but when it is perfectly agreeable to the highest degree of Christian honor and of love to mankind, agreeable to the lowest humility and sense of my own faults and failings and agreeable to the golden rule. 19. That was what he he, he lived his life by, one of them. And then he goes on to say, when I have said anything against anyone, to test it against that resolution. We would do well to learn that resolution. Never say anything at all against anybody, but when it is perfectly agreeable to the highest degree of Christian honor. Not to keep bringing up that word uh, that we looked at in the definition, but gossip is stupid. 
it destroys lives. And so guarding our tongue and guarding our ears is wise. That is godly wisdom. Well, that being said, look at verse 23 and 24. We come to our third problem we face in life. And the reason why we need wisdom, our inability to grasp the meaning of all that God is doing in the world. We can't see the, the whole picture. Verse 23, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Even Solomon, with all his wisdom, could not understand all that exists in this world, how God manages this world, what purposes God has for the events that he brings into this world. Solomon tried harder than anyone. He says it here, I will be wise, but God's ways are beyond his comprehension. Think of the book of Job and Job's words. Think of all that Job was going through, if you know the story. His whole life is taken from him. His whole life. He loses his family. He loses his livelihood. He, he gets sick. He, he has these boils on him, and his wife curses him. He's got all this against him. And you can imagine at that point, this was the most righteous man to be alive at the time, Job. All this has happened to him. And you can tell in the book that he was going through this. Why, God? Why? And he says, can you find out the deep things of God? This is a question. It's meant to be rhetorical. Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? It's too much. It's too much. Isaiah says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Many a theologian would be well, do well to apply this term and realize that I need to watch how far I go when I speak of a God whose ways are higher than my ways, the way the heavens are above the earth. And so it's no surprise that Solomon says that the answers were beyond finding out. In fact, with these words, it almost seems that Solomon's quest is over. I give up. I, I, I give up. I, I can't do any more. What else can I do? And see, when we come to the point of that in our search, when we're going through everything that we're going through, when we, we've exhausted every possible avenue, every possible angle, finding answers to the questions that perplex us most, whatever it is in your life, there are really only two responses. You can just give up completely or accept the reality that we cannot know everything, but God does. Give up completely or just accept the fact that our God knows. Solomon chose the latter. See, a wise person knows his limitations. When Solomon says it was far from me, he's saying he has surrendered to his, uh, his human frailty to his human finitude. And, and, and at that point, as he surrendered, that's when wisdom steps in. See, the wise man knows that he does not know. He does not know. And this is what helps to make him wise. This godly wisdom, this kind of godly wisdom, uh, Jonathan, uh, uh, John Calvin, I almost said Edwards again, and St. Augustine called this kind of godly wisdom learned ignorance. 
<laughs> Learned ignorance is the kind of knowledge that is content with its real limitations and is able, in light of that, with a quiet spirit to trust their loving heavenly Father, to just trust Him. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who can be his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever. Paul's saying, look, I, I don't know all of, God way, of God's ways. They are past finding out. I can't comprehend them all. They're unsearchable. But what I'm going to do at that point is, is stop my mouth and then just give glory to God because he alone is worthy. We don't give up. We should try as hard as we can to understand the meaning of life. And, and the meaning of maybe what you're going through right now, whatever it may be. But we should also be content to be able to confess that there are some mysteries we're just never going to understand. See, the Bible teaches that there are secret things. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, we read that this, there are secret things, that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And so, we, 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 we know their secret, we can't fully comprehend them. But God knows them. He knows them. And we also know that this God that, that knows all the secret things also loves us. And we also know that the God that knows all the secret things and loves us wants what's best for us. And now when you look at the circumstance, you may say, is that true? But when you look at the word, you know it is true. And see, that's the important thing because Deuteronomy 29, 29 goes on to say, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever. The revealed things. God so loved the world. That's revealed, John 3, 16, that you can be anxious for nothing because God cares for you, 1 Peter 5, 7. These things are revealed. And so he's saying, look, spend your effort. When, when, when you don't know the answer, when you can't go any further, any deeper, don't spend all your effort getting to know those things and trying to figure it out. Get, spend your effort to get to know what God has revealed. Not only uh, about maybe this situation, but about himself. What he has revealed about man. What he's revealed about sin, about salvation. And, and see, when you spend your time getting to know God, not his answers, but him, then you'll spend a lot less time fretting over the secret things that are too deep for you to comprehend anyway. Because you can't know the end from the beginning. And that's what wisdom does. This is how wisdom helps us navigate life in all its complexity and with all its unanswered questions. It, it directs us to search, yes, to try to know, but then eventually humbly bow before our sovereign God when we simply will never find an answer and then give our attention to knowing him and his real will found in the scriptures. You know, I read a book years and years ago it's called Finding God by Larry Crabb. And Dr. Crabb wrote this book because his brother passed. 
and it was shocking to him, very close to his brother. And in the book, he, he talks about many things, but in the preface, I think it was, it could have been in the first chapter, I'm not sure, but I, I remember him writing and saying that when he was wrestling with this, he, he knew, as all of us here probably know, that God is enough. God is enough. That, that the more I know about God, the better it is. But he also knew that he didn't know God enough for him to be enough, if you get the point. I realize, Lord, that even at the loss of my brother, I realize, Lord, and fill in the blank with your own tragedy, that you are enough, but I don't know you well enough. And that's why we spend the time to get to know God. So when the tragedy comes, we are prepared to look to him. And we know, yes, he is sovereign, but yes, he is loving. And yes, he knows all things. And yes, he is good and he wants what's best for us. And the more we know that, the more we can weather these storms. Well, in summary, here, here, here's the wisdom of Solomon. Verse 19, don't make power more important than wisdom. Verse 20, stop acting like you don't sin. Verse 21 and 22, don't stick your nose in other people's businesses. And verse 23 to 25, I'm stealing this from another preacher. Don't expect to know everything about God and life. Wisdom's important. You're a sinner. Stop gossiping or wanting to know gossip. And don't expect to know everything. Everything about God especially and life as well. See, if we heed those lessons, then you're led down the path of wisdom. Oh, we won't do it perfectly. But we do know this. We need wisdom. Now, let me close. And I want to close with just two things that Solomon has said. First, look at verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And then verse 24, that which has been as far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? So this is how I want to close. It seems to me that what we need based on these verses is a righteous man who does good and never sins and whose knowledge is vast enough to scale the depths of God's wisdom and find the answers. Now, it's obvious that when Solomon wrote this, these were meant to be rhetorical questions. There is no one who could find it out, is what he's looking for. At least, no one who is a sinner. But we know that Christ is no sinner. He did good and never sinned. He is without sin, says Hebrews. He is the righteous man who walked the earth. And he embodies the very wisdom of God. Christ, the power of God. Christ, the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.24. And so the answer to Solomon's dilemma here in verse 20 and in verse 24, the answer to our dilemma, because we all share it, is Jesus. See, Paul prays that we may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. Who can know the depths of God's love? Christ can 
and he reveals it. Who can know the depths of God's mighty wisdom? Christ can, and he reveals it to us. Who can know the depths of God's understanding? Christ can, and he's revealed it to us. In fact, who can know the depths of God's unchangeable, unsearchable judgments, as Paul called them in Romans 11? Well, the answer, beloved, is Christ can, and he reveals it to us. Here's how it works. Let me explain. I imagine we will all agree with this, that at times in life, something happens in our lives, we hear something, whatever it is, and if we're honest, we we may ask ourselves, how can the God that pastor keeps talking about every Sunday be the God that's real in light of so much suffering? How can we say God is good and loving if he allows so much suffering? That's the way it's usually phrased. If God is so immune to it, if he's so far off, so distant, how would you answer that question when someone says that? They're facing tragedy. And you know the answer, as I said earlier, is God. It's Jesus. How would you answer that? Well, there's several answers. There's philosophical answers. We're not going to do that this morning. There's other answers. There's biblical theology. We're going to just do one thing. I believe the answer is found at the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's where God's wisdom makes sense of suffering. See, Christ endured suffering and death, and he did not deserve it. He was sinless, but he did it because of his selfless love for you and me who believe. That is how wide and long and high and deep God's love is for us. He became man and died to do what? To set sinners free. And that's why we find wisdom, the wisdom of God in Christ. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews, they they demanded signs and Gentiles wanted wisdom. But what do we do? We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews who wanted power and folly to the Gentiles who were looking for wisdom. But to those who are called, those who believe, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is what? Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then he says this, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so we don't want to play the fool, to act stupidly. And the only way we can do that, at least in this context right now, is to deny that all the wisdom of God is found in Christ, to deny that salvation is found in Christ alone, and that God is wiser than man. And so we look to Jesus. We look to him for strength. We look to him for salvation. We look to him for wisdom. And when we look to him, you'll find everything, everything that you're looking for. Let's pray.
Well, Father, this is easy to preach and hard to follow. We play the fool often, even as children of God. And so, Father, I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, as we look to Christ and Him alone, that you would grant us wisdom to be able to discern those things that you would call us to discern in the midst of this life. Ultimately, Lord, that we would know you better through your Son, our Savior. Amen.